a number one New York Times bestseller and an Oprah book club pick, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, brings forward a blended narrative of how America has been shaped by a hidden caste system, a rigid, rigid hierarchy of human rankings. Admits, admits this era of conversations surrounding the intersectionality of race, class, and gender, Wilkerson's book illustrates the background and foundations of these American stratifications through this uncovered caste system. Hello, and welcome to tonight's program. Thank you for joining us. I'm Liz Brailsford, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Our program features is Isabel Wilkerson, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, and her latest book bestseller, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. I'd like to thank Dallas College for partnering with us tonight. We love to partner with them and hope to continue to do so regularly. And I'd also like to thank a few of our council's institutional members, Haynes & Boone, NEC Corporation of America, Lockheed Martin, and PNC. They help make our work possible. And I'm now going to pass it over to our partner, Chancellor Lonnen at Dallas College. And thank you again for joining us. Well, thank you, Liz, and thank you to the World Affairs Council for partnering uh, on this exciting evening. So to all of you, welcome to Dallas College. It's a pleasure uh, to, to welcome you here. Tonight is an extraordinary opportunity to hear from and engage with an author who's bringing to light ideas that are helping us put history into context. Each year here at Dallas College, our students, our employees come together to read a selected book through the Common Book Experience Program. The Common Book is selected by an interdisciplinary group of faculty, staff, and administration from across the school and throughout our campuses. Conversations and activities related to the book's themes build a sense of community across Dallas College. This program uh, aims to create an engaging, thought-provoking dialogue within our community. Tonight, we want to extend that engagement uh, across Dallas and Fort Worth uh, and uh, across the, uh, our screens and the internet uh, to welcome Isabel Wilkerson, winner of the Pulitzer Prize and the National Humanities Medal and author of the critically acclaimed New York bestsellers, The Warmth of the Other Suns, and our common book that we're gonna talk about tonight, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. She won a Pulitzer Prize for her deeply humane narrative writing while serving as the Chicago Bureau Chief of the New York Times in 1994, making her the first Black woman in the history of American journalism to win a Pulitzer Prize and the first African-American to win for individual reporting. The Warmth of Other Sons won the National Book Critics Circle Award and was named to more than 30 best of the year lists, including the New York Times, the LA Times, The New Yorker, and The Washington Post. American Prospect Magazine calls Wilkerson's work the missing puzzle piece of our country's history. And in 2016, President Barack Obama awarded Wilkerson the National Humanities Medal for championing the stories of unsung history. Her mo most recent book that we're discussing the evening, this evening, Cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, was published in August 2020 to critical acclaim and became a number one New York Times bestseller. It was called the keynote nonfiction book of the American century thus far. 
And Oprah, who you might have heard of, chosen as her 2020 summer fall book club selection, and she declared it the most important book she's ever read. Here at Dallas College, we're a center of teaching and learning, so I'm pleased that we can do that. We can do so together tonight. Cast is not just a look at history; it can act as a guide for us as we promote solidarity within our community. And I'll say for this evening, we'll have a Q&A portion of the program and Ms. Wilkinson would love to hear your thoughts about her books. So with that, please join me in welcoming Isabel Wilkerson. Thank you so much for inviting me to be with you this evening. And I am so grateful to all of you for choosing this as a common read. Uh, it means so much to me uh, working on a book takes almost everything out of you and you uh, you know you do the research you spend so much time it takes years and years and years of research hard work uh, burrowing deep into history pulling it all together into one volume that everyone can read you hope that it'll be accessible for everyone who might be able to read it and then you don't know what's going to happen after you get it done and so it means so much to me to know that uh, it is being embraced uh, it is being understood, it's being studied. It just means so much to me. So thank you so much for doing that. The, uh, the circumstances that led me to work on this book and the circumstances that we find ourselves in as a country right now um, have been uh, ones that have further inspired me to keep talking about this and to keep encouraging people to dig into the history. Because in recent times, it's not been unusual to hear people say something along the lines of, I don't recognize my country or this is not what America stands for. And whenever I hear that uh, sentiment expressed, I'm reminded that not enough of us as Americans have had the opportunity to know our country's true and full history. Because if we knew our country's true and full history, we would know that our country is in some ways like a, a patient with a pre-existing condition like heart disease. And if there's a patient who has a pre-existing condition like heart disease and this patient has a heart attack, you might be alarmed. You might be devastated. You might be moved to action. In fact, we would hope that you would be moved to action. But you would not be surprised if a heart patient without intervention or treatment had a heart attack. And so that is what I am hoping this work, this book, and these conversations will remind us uh, and, and urge us on to do, and that is to, to, not, to no longer be as surprised by the things that we might see. We don't have the latitude, we don't have the time, we don't have the luxury of being surprised anymore. The times in which we live call for us to be aware, call for us to be able to think ahead, uh, to be able to plan and to anticipate uh, the challenges that we have faced. We can turn to history to understand what has gone before us, and history often holds all, a lot of the answers for the dilemmas that we might face as Americans right now. The book that, uh, that brought me to your attention, the book that you spent time with, and that I hope that others will spend time with, uh, really digging into this, uh, to the, the context and the content of this book. This book that, uh, that has drawn uh, my, you to my attention is a book that I did not wish to write. Uh, it's not a book that I, dreamt of writing years and years ago. It's a book that called upon me to, be, to, uh, to write. It was a book that insisted upon being written in the era in which we find ourselves. 
And then the book, uh, when the book finally was completed, I then had to uh, go out into the virtual space because this book came out in 2020. And I remember one of the very first events that we did, it was virtual in the same way uh, that so many of our events like this one um, happened to be. And at that very first event, um, the, the moderator said to me, you know, uh, backstage, he said, you know, we've been through so much as a country. We're in the midst of this global pandemic. We're in the midst of this fraught presidential political campaign. We're in the midst of the, the uprisings over what happened to George Floyd. And then in August, you dropped cast on us. And so I said to this moderator, just as good naturedly to him, as he had said to me, I said, I did not drop cast on anyone. Cast is with us, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. Cast is working within our society, whether we see it or not. Cast is undermining our society and our democracy, whether we know it or not, whether we name it or not. And so we might as well, uh, might as well address and recognize what is working within our society because it is operating whether we recognize it or not. Now, one of the ways that we can see this, I mean, one of the most uh, recent examples that draws our attention to the distinctions that CAST can allow us to see, the language and the lens of CAST allow us to see, is that we have often grown accustomed to the, uh, the uh, extremes and the poles of our existence, meaning the, the, uh, the idea that there can be uh, black versus white. We're accustomed to that paradigm of black versus white. But caste allows us to see that this is far deeper and has far greater breadth and uh, expansiveness. It expands our understanding of our society and that which we have inherited as Americans. And so one of the more recent examples uh, came just uh, weeks before the book came out in paperback. I mean, it's stunning that this book came out in hardcover just weeks after George Floyd, what happened to George Floyd, and it came out in paperback just two weeks ago, which was weeks after what happened to Tyree Nichols. And that case is one of the cases that allows us to see the multi-layered aspects of caste and how it can help us understand that which otherwise doesn't make sense to us. And in that case, we know that Tyree Nichols uh, in Memphis was, was beaten to death at the hands of, of officers. And a lot of people were wondering, well, how, what does this mean? What does it say about identity? What does it say about our divisions? What can we learn from this? And one of the things that we learn is that, um, that our division, the divisions in our society are not merely about black versus white. It is about power. And it's about the deadly dehumanization of people who've been assigned to the bottom of, of our country's social order from the very beginning. And they, that dehumanization that allows almost anything, any atrocity, uh, anything to be inflicted upon them by anyone in any group, including their own, in order to uphold the hierarchy, uphold the social order, and to maintain one's own place within it, however marginal that may be. And that is why um, the language of racism, which we are all accustomed to and has a very important place in helping us to understand what we may be experiencing as a country, but how it does not alone explain everything, that it can sometimes be, there can be other things at work, and this helps to define and describe what we are facing as a nation. One of the things that I wrote long before the case involving Tyree Nichols, this is what I wrote back in 2019 in the book, Cast, uh, this was 
the book came out in 2020, but I wrote it, finished writing it in 2019. And I wrote, the enforcers of caste, the enforcers of caste come in every color, creed, and gender. One does not have to be in the dominant group to do the bidding of the caste system. In fact, the most potent instrument of a caste system is a sentinel at every rung whose identity forswears any accusation of discrimination and helps keep the caste system humming and thus putting in peril many, many people who are in the marginalized group. One of the things that I include so much in the book, and those of you who had a chance to read it know that I have many, many metaphors and metaphors are uh, an age old universal uh, way of imparting information to, uh, to human beings between and among human beings. And so there are many, many metaphors, ways of rather than my telling you what to think or what to believe, then it's allowing you to see for oneself and to be able to have the language of allegory and metaphor to be able to, uh, to drive home those points. And so one of the metaphors that, um, that has been so helpful in understanding what we've inherited as a nation and why we happen to be where we are is a metaphor involving an old house. Now, anyone who knows anything about an old house knows that the work is never done. You don't even really expect the work to, to be fully done. You never can say, well, I have a new hot water heater. I got a new air conditioning system. And now I will never have to think about that ever again. We, you, you know that once you fix one thing, there's often something else that arises. And if we think of our country as an old house, then we would never say, we passed this law. We will never have to think about this issue ever again. This is an ongoing challenge of, of maintaining an old house, in our case, a 400-year-old social order, a 400-year-old infrastructure that requires inspection, requires maintenance, and sometimes the systems require complete overhaul in order to keep them in, in place for generations to come. And when you live in an old house, uh, you, you may not want to go in the basement after a storm. But if you don't go into the basement, it's at your own peril. The owner of an old house knows that whatever is lurking in that old house will be there waiting for you uh, uh, and lurking, whether you choose to look or not. Whatever you are ignoring will never go away. Ignorance is no protection from the consequences of an action. So a, a country being like an old house means that, that there are so many uh, things that you have to contend with in an old house, but when you take possession of an old house, you realize that you may not be the one, you, in fact, you are not the one, you just took possession of it. You're not the one who created the uneven pillars and joists and beams and the frayed wiring and the corroded pipes. Those are not your doing. But what your responsibility is, once you take possession of, your of that old house, then it is your responsibility to look at that to see what is wrong, to fix what is wrong, to overhaul what is wrong, and to make sure that it's standing for succeeding generations. And from the moment that you take possession of the house, any further deterioration is on your hands. And those are that's the message for each and every one of us as Americans, because we are the current stewards of this old house known as America. And so it falls to all of us to be responsible, to make sure that this house is fixed, overhauled, whatever it takes to maintain it for succeeding generations. Here we are having to come to grips with the consequences of the divisions that we have inherited as Americans. Uh, when it comes to COVID-19, which we, you know, we feel that we're on the other side of it, 
uh, we've made tremendous strides, but there's a lot to learn from what happened in this country related to COVID-19. One of them has to do with the fact that our country, despite its wealth and technology, ended up being the country with the largest number of people who died as a result of COVID-19 than any other country in the world. The largest number of recorded deaths from COVID-19 occurred in our country, despite our wealth, and despite our technological advancements. And when it comes to COVID cases, we also led the world in recorded COVID cases. Many tens of tens of millions of cases more uh, than, the, uh, than the second rank country when it comes to COVID cases, and that is India. And so that calls upon us to think about how is it that two very, very different countries, the oldest democracy in the world and the largest democracy in the world, are being stricken or have been stricken with these numbers. One country has the world's oldest caste system, India, and the other one, our country, has a less recognized one. A caste system through its social controls and its stigmas and pillars of caste embeds and foments division. That's what a caste system is intended to do. That's why it exists. It programs people into believing that they have no stake in the well-being of those that they have been told are beneath them those that they've been told are unworthy, undeserving. It makes for a much less magnanimous society, a built-in us versus them distance between groups. It affects policy. It affects how and where the country invests or chooses not to invest. And it actually costs lives because of the divisions that separate us and allow us to believe that we actually are somehow immune, maybe immune to those things that are affecting our fellow uh, citizens, our fellow human beings. Now, the uh, in, in, uh, I'll give an example of of the of uh, uh, the ways in which uh, caste language that this is language that we're not accustomed to applying to our country. Although the book has been out for two and a half years, so many many people have learned about this language. But I was so inspired by the experiences uh, of Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King, who. Uh, came to the recognition about the applicability of this ancient, ancient concept when he had the chance to go to India in the winter of 1959. He'd always wanted to go to India because he'd been so inspired by the nonviolent protest philosophy of Mohandas K. Gandhi, and he finally had the chance to go in the winter of 1959. Now, when he arrived, it turned out that everywhere he went, people wanted his autograph, they wanted their picture taken with him. And that was because on the other side of the planet, people were paying close attention to the liberation efforts of, of people of African descent, of African-Americans uh, in this country. So everywhere he went, people recognized him and they wanted his autograph, wanted to greet him. Now, while he was there, he decided that he wanted to meet with people who were then known as untouchable. This is a group that uh, of people who uh, in the Indian caste system were held at the very, very bottom of the Indian caste system. In fact, considered so lowly that they were outside of the Indian caste system. This is a group of people then known as untouchables, now known as Dalits. And, and Dr. King wanted to visit with the people who were from that community. So he traveled to the Southern part of the country uh, and he went and visited a school that was populated by uh, students whose families were from the untouchable community. Now, the principal was so excited to greet him that day that he gathered the students around and he, he brought Dr. King out and he said, young people, I wish to introduce you to a fellow untouchable from the United States of America. 
when Dr. King heard that language applied to him, he first bristled at that language being used to describe him. He was, in fact, peeved to be described in that way. He did not see himself in the language of untouchability. He did not see himself in, in the way of being at the bottom of a caste system, the way that people were describing him. But then he thought about it. He thought about what was, at that very moment, 20 million Black people in the United States who were held outside of the body politic, who were at that very moment being uh, prohibited from being able to vote, prohibited from as to where they could go to school, prohibited as to where they could live, prohibited as to the kind of work that they could do, prohibited in every sphere of life, and that their efforts to be recognized as citizens were being met with tremendous hostility, resentment, and in fact, violence. And so Dr. King thought about that, and he said to himself, I am an untouchable, and every Black person in the United States is an untouchable too. Dr. King came to the recognition about the applicability of an ancient concept that most people would never connect to our country because those who knew best what a caste system was, those who were at the very bottom of the caste system of India, instantly recognized caste when they saw it, instantly knew who fit where in the caste system uh, of, of, of our country, and they connected their system of hierarchy to our own. Now, caste, again, as I said, is not a word that's often applied to the United States. It's the language of India, South Asia, even feudal Europe. But there were anthropologists and social scientists who went into the Jim Crow South, literally risked their lives to go into the Jim Crow South as at the height of the regime's power. And they uh, had to adhere to the strictures and the rules and expectations, protocols, of the Jim Crow system, which meant that they were risking their lives to do that. And they, uh, they emerged from their work in the South. This was in Mississippi where they did that with their research. They emerged from their research using the language of caste. W.E.B. Du Bois, one of the greatest uh, black scholars of the 20th century or in, in history, in the history of the country, made repeated connections to caste and, and, uh, and in, within our country um, in his treatise on race particularly the 1935 magnum opus of his Black Reconstruction, which was about the years after the end of the Civil War. And one of the things that he wrote was that after the Civil War, he wrote, Dr. Du Bois wrote, the slave went free, stood a brief moment in the sun, then moved back again towards slavery. In this case, he's speaking about Jim Crow. And he said, the whole weight of America was thrown to color caste. Then the other, another thing that he said was the advance of the freedmen had been too rapid and the South feared it. Every effort must be made, Dr. Uh, du Bois said, to keep the Negro in his place as a servile caste. Those are the words of W.B. Du Bois. Caste is essentially an artificial, arbitrary graded ranking of human value in the society. It determines one's standing, respect, benefit of the doubt, access to resources or the denial of access to resources, assumptions of competence and worthiness, intelligence, whether one will be protected by the authorities or attacked by the authorities. Caste is the infrastructure of our divisions and it predates the time that the United States was even founded as a country. It's 400 years old. Any number of arbitrary metrics could be used to rank and divide people in a caste system. Ethnicity, religion, language, 
place of origin. In our country, the metric that the early colonists chose to use to divide and to rank people, to determine who would be slave or free, who would have rights or no rights, not even over their own bodies, who would profit from the labor extracted from others or who could be reduced to a commodity, who could be bought, who could be sold, who could be won in a bet, who could be given away as a wedding present. The early colonists chose to use the metric that we have now come to recognize as race. This is a fairly new concept in human history. It only dates back to the time of the transatlantic slave trade and the colonization of the New World. This is a relatively new construct, a relatively new way to describe human beings. Remembering that uh, before the, the time of the transatlantic slave trade, before the, uh, the expansion, European expansion into the Western Hemisphere, there would have been no need for uh, for people in Europe to describe themselves as white because uh, because they were their primary identity was that of being German or Polish or Irish or Scottish or or Dutch, whatever it might have been. And because they looked very similarly to one another, they would not have the, the defining factor in identity would not have been to be white, but to have been what their their nationality, their ethnicity, their language, that would have been the main identity. So remember that race is a fairly new concept. The idea of caste though is thousands and thousands of years old, predates long before the founding of our country. And so the, the, the early colonists chose to use a metric that we have now come to, to recognize as the almost a seemingly primordial uh, fact, meaning the idea of race. What they did by choosing race as a dividing factor in our country is that they took otherwise neutral physical characteristics that should have no meaning other than the beautiful range of human manifestation. And they took those physical characteristics and converted them into a value. They assigned a value to what people look like and used the, that, those physical characteristics to assign people to an inherited role within a hierarchy before there was even a United States of America. Thus, slavery became the foundation of a hierarchy built on exploitation, was succeeded by Jim Crow, which lasted for nearly uh, 100 years and manifests in the current day. Those of us alive today as a result of the, the uh, hierarchy and the divisions that were baked into the founding of, of our country, uh, show, they show up in ways that are startling um, even now. One of them is that we have had in recent years to get adjusted to having to see things that the majority of human beings who have ever lived would not have seen unless they were on the battlefield or the emergency room. And that is to see a human being killed before our very eyes is what we saw happen to, to George Floyd uh, in, uh, in uh, 2020. No one to help him, no one to save him. His, his, uh, his life drained from him, his humanity stripped from him. And over what? It was over the accusation that he presumably attempted to pass a counterfeit $20 bill. This was uh, an infraction that we learned that the trial of his assailant was not even an arrestable offense. It was, the, it was an infraction that generally is handled with a citation, meaning a ticket, and then a court date, which means that George Floyd should be alive today. 
And then just seven months after what we saw then, we have to think about the effect that seeing this kind of violence uh, has on all of us, numbing us to to, uh, the dehumanization of our fellow citizens and fellow members of our own species. Seven months after that, we then saw a different iteration of the ways in which hierarchy works in our society. And that is when we saw um, our, our, uh, the citadel of democracy itself. Uh, we saw the United States Capitol under siege uh, with um, uh, mobs rampaging through Statuary Hall, ransacking the belongings of lawmakers. And we know that, the, that there were, that we, we actually saw the footage showing police officers being attacked Uh, by people in that mob. And we know that half a dozen officers died as a result of that that attack, of of that siege. But one of the things that is instructive in understanding how hierarchy works, it works in our country, is that that we saw uh, the the, the, uh, rampaging through the halls of the the Capitol, and we saw, we know that police officers were attacked in that case. But at the end of the day, people who had actually attacked officers leading to the deaths of of six officers actually walked down the steps of the Capitol that very day with their lives, something that had been denied George Floyd just months before. Because not enough of us have had a chance to know our country's true and full history, far too many of us speak of the institution of slavery as a sad, dark chapter in our country's history, when in fact it was the foundation of our country's social, political, and economic order. Slavery lasted for 246 years. That is 12 generations. How many greats do we have to add to the, to the word grandparent to begin to conceive of how long slavery lasted on this soil? Another way of looking at it is slavery lasted for so long that it was not until last July, July of 2022, that the United States became a free and independent nation for as long as slavery lasted on the soil. One last way to look at the the impact and the length and breadth of, of the impact of the institution of slavery on us as Americans is that slavery lasted for so long that no adult alive today will be alive at the point at which African-Americans will have been free for as long as African-Americans were enslaved. That will not happen until the year 2111. It will not be until the second decade of the 22nd century that African-Americans will will finally reach parity between enslavement and freedom. We have not addressed much less truly reconciled what we are facing as a nation. No one was held to account for those 246 years of enslavement. No one was held to account for the rupture of secession and civil war. Instead, there are monuments to those men. Because we have not addressed much less reconciled what we are facing as a nation, we alive today are tasked with explaining to succeeding generations, how is it that we could see a Confederate flag inside the United States Capitol. We alive today are tasked with explaining to succeeding generations, how is it that a rioter in our day could deliver the Confederate flag farther than Robert E. Lee himself? What we are witnessing now are the ongoing consequences of our racial caste system and its response to threats to its existence, or more specifically, those who 
have been programmed, trained to see dominance as a birthright, desperate, it seems, to protect it at all costs. We saw the pictures and the videos of the United States Capitol under siege and um, the mobs uh, self-righteous and convinced of the righteousness of their cause, literally climbing the walls to get into the United States Capitol to disrupt democracy in progress and to impose their version of it onto the rest of the country. But later that day, later actually that night, there was a video that circulated that showed a different scene at the Capitol after it had been cleared of the mob. And in this scene, it was a, a, a crew of janitors who were brought in to clean up after the rampage. There they were laboring in their uniforms, bent over with mops and with brooms and with masks over their faces. They were to a person all black. There was a police officer stationed surveilling them as they went about their humble work. I saw instantly the people assigned to the subordinated caste in our country for 400 years, still consigned to their historic role of serving, of cleaning up after those who had been programmed to believe in their own dominance, to see themselves as dominant, superior, supreme. Had people who looked like the janitors in that crew seen working late into the night, deigned to burst through police barricades, deigned to break into the United States Capitol? Well, we know it would have come of that. It is inconceivable. It is unthinkable. They would not have lived to tell. That is the enduring nature of hierarchy, the entitlement of those assigned to dominance to take and to assert and even to destroy if they so choose that which they perceive to be theirs. In these unprecedented recent years, if we've learned anything from COVID, which we're climbing out of, or hope to have climbed out of for good, that what we have endured in this, in this era of the pandemic is that if we've learned anything from COVID, it's that an invisible organism without a brain managed to cause upheaval across the entire planet and to overtake presumably a smarter species because it does not care about color or nationality, or race, or immigrant status, or gender, or national borders, or passports. COVID sees all humans for what we actually are, one interconnected and interdependent species. COVID sees all humans as fundamentally the same. COVID will infect anyone that it has access to long enough. It sees what we have in common if humans don't see it for ourselves. And that is that we are all in this together and it is time that we start to act like it. The circumstances in which we find ourselves require or call upon us to heed the words and the actions of possibly the smartest man who ever lived, Albert Einstein. He escaped Nazi Germany only to become deeply grieved by the racial inequities that he saw in his new adopted land. And he used his privilege to stand up against injustice, to speak out against it at every turn. He joined, he chose to join the NAACP. He advocated on behalf of marginalized people, particularly African-Americans with whom he made common cause. I was so moved by his humanitarian ideals that I chose his words as the epigraph to this book, Cast the Origins of Our Discontents. Professor Einstein said, if the majority knew of the root of this evil, then the road to its cure would not be long. The scenes of siege in our nation's capital 
that we have endured and seen, in addition to all of the videos that we have been uh, uh, eyewitness to, may look like another, another country, but it is ours. What we have seen may have looked like a different century, but it is ours. What we have seen may have looked like a long ago battle over justice waged and presumably won back in another era, but it is ours still. This is the country's karmic moment of truth. Will it follow the path of darkness and division, of hate and hierarchy that have riven it for centuries? Or will it rise to what Dr. King called the heights of the majestic and live up to its creed and become and defend true democracy with liberty and justice for every single one of us? What we have seen has made it wrenchingly clear that Dr. King's mission has not been completed. It will be up to all of us but particularly the prime beneficiaries of our country's social order to make it so, not only for our communities, our children, and our country, but for the species and for the planet itself. Thank you so much for choosing this book as your common read. I so look forward to our conversation and to hearing your questions. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much, Isabel Wilkerson. We appreciate that conversation, that chat. My name is Dr. Tony Robinson, and I'm with Dallas College as the Associate Dean of Special Academic Programs. And I have the privilege of overseeing our Common Book Experience Program at the college. Um, so right now, I'm gonna be the person that's gonna moderate the Q&A session. And we've had various of um, questions in the chat. So I'm going to kind of combine some questions because some of them are similar. But one of the most popular questions that we've had this evening thus far is what are some ways that we can work to compensate for that unconscious biasness inherent in the caste system? And then I personally, as an educator, and we have a lot of educators in the room and possibly some students, I want to, uh, there's a second part to that question is how can you see um, those things implemented, implemented inside and outside of the classroom and on the college campus? Well, um, you know, I have always lots of metaphors. I think that the goal is to spark the neuron within anyone hearing, within the listening to me or reading the book, so that we ourselves can know enough about what we are dealing with that we can have the answers ourselves. In other words, rather than my giving the answers, I mean, I will answer the question, but rather than my providing an answer, is to have each of us understand this so deeply in our bones that we ourselves can see what is necessary to be done in our own lives, in our own spheres of influence, in our own institutions, and where we have where we have power and influence, and each of us has more power and influence that we than we often give ourselves credit for. So, first of all, when it comes to uh, uh, you know how do we compensate for the unconscious biases that are built in to all of us, I mean, we are human beings. That means that we are not, um, we're not machines that you just, like you just put data in and then you get objective responses from. We are, so we are subjective human beings and that's the beauty of humanity is that we can make adjustments, we can feel, uh, we can feel a con we can have a connection to another member of our species. We can have a connection to even other species, even to, to people who have pets, or feel a connection to uh, saving aspects of the planet. We could. There's so much richness in what it is that we are human beings that in our in our humanity. But one of the challenges is that because we are subjective human beings, that means that we have a particular perspective. 
whatever it is that wherever we are situated is what it is that we see. And we need to recognize that our perspective is our singular perspective and we may not be able to see other things in other ways. That's why we have to work extra hard to see things from other people's perspective because we do not, no one has the full scope of what, it, of, what of the many, many perspectives that a human being can have. So I think about having to work hard to do that. And one of the things that, one of the metaphors that come to, comes to mind for me is that when we're driving our cars, we take, we have, cars have so many extra um, uh, features to compensate for what we recognize is, uh, is, the, is the reality of blind spots. We know we have blind spots. You're driving this way, so you can't see in the back of your head. You can't see the back of your head. And we know you can't see, you know you can't see the back of your head. You know that there's peripheral vision and it only takes us so far. There are things that we can't see on the side. So what is it that we do? We have cars that have, uh, you know, you have the side mirrors, you have, uh, you have the, the rear view mirror, you've got mirrors in the back, you got cameras in the back, you got cars that beep and honk and, and, and uh, bleat you, when you get too close to a car. Think about all the things that we do to compensate for the blind spots when we're driving a car. How much more important is it to compensate for the, for the recognizable uh, almost unavoidable blind spots that we would have as human beings as we're moving about the world, making major decisions in, in who will be hired for a position, who will be granted a mortgage to get a, a you know, to be able to, uh, to buy a house, who will be able to, uh, you know, uh, get the assistance that they need if they are, uh, if, if they are ill and they, they are experiencing pain. How do we make those decisions about who's going to get what in our society, how people will be treated in our society. We have blind spots because we are human. And if we make the, go to the great effort of having all of these compensations in our cars, how much more important is it to have compensation for the blind spots that we have as we move about doing far more, you know, things that are just as important in raising children, teaching young people, moving about the world, all the things that we have to do in, in, uh, in the course of a, of a day, a week, a month, a semester, whatever it may be. And so I think that to me, that's an example. To, the first thing is to recognize that we have the blind spots. If you pretend that you don't have the blind spots, you will just go around without, who could drive without a rear view mirror? Who could drive without mirrors on the side? We don't question the fact that we need mirrors on the side and the rear view mirrors and we're adding more things all the time. We, but people will question whether, well, you know, I don't know the uh, subconscious, you know, unconscious bias, that's not real, we're not biased, we're human. We have biases because we're human and no human being uh, can escape the, the fact of being human and what comes with that. So that's one re response to that. The other response is that, um, is that it calls upon us as well to do what we are told when we're on a plane and you know, we hear the, the instructions that you know, if in the case that the mask comes down, you put the mask on yourself and then you put the mask on those who are dependent upon you. So what that calls upon us is, is that those of us in positions of, of influence, and, that, and when I mean influence, I mean all kinds of influence, meaning parents, um, aunts and uncles, uh, um, uh, grandparents, so within the family system, uh, when we think about teachers, when we think about professors, when we think about uh, supervisors, we think about all the people who are in a position of influence, authority, and power 
to have some uh, say over what happens with people who are dependent upon us. We have to first make sure that we are educated ourselves. We need to work on ourselves first because we cannot do our jobs uh, at, at the very highest capacity as parents, as teachers, as supervisors, as whatever it may be, if we have not done the work ourselves. The, the livelihood and the very lives of other people are dependent upon those who are in positions of whatever influence it may be to do their very best to know the history, to know the circumstances, to be aware of what's going on in our country, to, again, speaking of the old house, to understand what's going on with this old house that we've all inherited. There's a responsibility that each of us has. When we are in a position of responsibility, our, our responsibility is first to understand and to know it ourselves so that we can impart it to others and protect those who are in our care, in our, uh, in, who are dependent upon us. So those are the two things that, that I would say. And I would hope that um, the, um, the, the beautiful intentions of that question the, and the questioners would be able to translate that, what I just said, into however it can apply in one's own life. Thank you. So we have another question. I can tell this is from an educator too as well. <laughs> um, the question uh, states, your book points out justifications of the caste system in the US based on myths and inherent uh, superiority of, of the dominant group rather than accurate information. So please describe some of the best practices that you've seen in your, in your career um, on college and university campuses. Um, that they're doing to really change um, this reality? Well, the, you know, each unit, first of all, uh, what I'm inspired by are the ways in which, again, as I said about putting the mask on yourself before you put on the mask on those who are dependent upon you. The, a lot of people will, will say, you know, I, for example, let's say there's a, a nurse that might say who's, who's upset about something that's going on in the news or what's going on, say, with the Supreme Court or something that the nurse might say, you know, oh, I just wish I could do something about the Supreme Court. So my response to that is, okay, you're not, you're, you're, you're not uh, a lawyer to be working to do any, you, you do not have the power within your sphere of influence to do anything directly about the Supreme Court. You can vote, there are things that you can do, you can write letters, there are things that you can do as a citizen, but you do not have a direct say over what happens with the Supreme Court. But what you do have direct say over is your, what is your sphere of influence as a nurse. And that's massive, the power to be able to influence what happens to a human being uh, when they are a patient. So, so what I, I, why do I say that? I say that to say that one of the first things that we need to do is to look at our institutions first. You cannot fix what you haven't diagnosed. You can't, you know, you can't heal what you have not, you, you can't fix what you haven't first identified. So you have to first identify what is going on within one's own institution? What is going on within one's own department? What is the history of that department? What's the history of that division? What's the history of that institution? Many institutions are finding, they're doing the research and they're finding that their, their uh, institutions had, um, you know, had either owned enslaved people. There, there are colleges and universities that are discovering we actually, we actually had slaves. We, we actually were participants in slavery. There are institutions that are discovering that, uh, that, they, uh, that they had uh, ex excluded, prohibited people of color, prohibited women from being able to enroll 
prohibited women and, and people of color from being able to be professors to join the faculty. So uh, the first thing is to know the history of one's own institution and then recognizing what the culture of the institution has again inherited like we've inherited this old house. What is the institution inherited? So I, I, I really like to get to the root of a thing. I like to get underneath it. A lot of times we're looking for what is it that we're looking at right now and how can we fix it? Well, you can't fix it unless you have gone back to see how did we get to where we are. When we go to the doctor, the doctor often will not even see us until he is until we filled out all these forms. And on those forms, they're asking all these questions about the bodily systems. You know, your you know your uh, your lungs or your heart. They're all asking all these questions, and they're asking these questions not just about your your personal your body, but your parents and your grandparents before you. That you cannot diagnose that which you have not actually understood. You haven't done the research. You haven't looked at the history. The history is where the answers are because it tells us what have we inherited, what are we dealing with, because it goes so far back. And so that that to me, the best practices have to do with recognizing what we have inherited. One of the things that happens in a lot of um, institutions is, is first even recognizing, I mean, going all the way back to the land that the institution is on and recognizing the nations, the indigenous nations whose land the, the, that particular institution is sitting on. Even, even thinking of it in those terms, recognizing what the history is, sets the framework for how you will proceed because it lets you know, this is where we began. This is where we are now, and this is where we want to go forward. I also really strongly believe in having a mission statement to know where is it that you're trying to go, rather than just trying to fix a particular thing that we're looking at right now, being in crisis mode or reactionary is to be able to sit back. There's a, there's a, a Cuban saying that says, slow down, I'm in a hurry. <laughs> and I love that because we're in a hurry to want to fix these things. We're in a hurry to make things right. And we, we, and, and for, for particularly for uh, sectors of our society that are matters of life and death, and I'm including the criminal justice system and healthcare uh, in particular, yes, those things need to be fixed immediately, but they will not be fixed unless we get to the bottom, to the root of how we got to where we are. I cannot emphasize that enough. So in terms of best practices, I'm seeing that a lot of, a lot of, institutions are willing to go back and, and reconcile and address the history that led them to where they are, because there's a consistency um, between what's happened in the past and what we've inherited and what we're looking at in, in front of us right now. Thank you. So we're going to switch lanes a little bit. I have an um, audience member um, that has a statement, but then also a question. Um, this person uh, states, I've noticed that TV commercials today feature about 75% Black men in social or implied romantic relationships with white women in marketing products and companies. Mm -hmm. I see few Black women in similar situations with white men in TV commercials. Do you think this depiction of Black men with white women and the exclusion of Black women are ways to combat the problem of caste in this country, or is it per perpetuating it? That's an interesting question. And I've been on the road with this book for two and a half years. And that's the first time I got that question. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, there's a, a lot to unpack there. Um, I believe that well, one of the, the beautiful things that's happened in, the, in recent years is this awareness that um, there's no one definition of what an American is. You know, just to be able to show the wide range of, hum of humanity. I think there was a, I remember there was one airline 
that had, um, you know, his, historically it had just, you know, one kind of person, someone from the, the, dominate, the dominant majority in our country historically, um, shown in any, you know, to put on the seatbelt and to, you know, the, about the masks and all that. And that they, in, in like maybe two years or two or three years ago, they changed it up so that you saw this ra beautiful range of humanity, all kinds of people. You would see people who, you know, had, who had a brown skin and a turban. You saw someone who had, um, you know, had a, a, a head wrap or, or locks. You know, you had all kinds of beautiful manifestations. Finally, we have representation of what, we look like as a species and what Americans actually look like. So that is all to the good. I do believe that, um, that this is a really deeper question than it sounds like. And I, I would love to, to know who the, you know, what, what the questioner actually has in mind underneath of it. I will say that my initial response is that um, our, the hierarchy um, is not just about black and white. The hierarchy is, has you know puts the people who were the you know originating colonists of this country, meaning um, meaning British colonists, established themselves at the very top of the hierarchy that they were creating. It turns out that when you're creating a hierarchy, people who want to create a hierarchy will put themselves on top. That's like that's human nature as well. Whichever hierarchy, wherever you're looking. It's the people who are creating it put themselves at the top. And then what happens is that the people who, others who arrived to this country who may not have been British, but look like them also were folded into that, that group that again, as I said in the talk, had no reason for existing while it was in Europe, but suddenly had a reason to exist when we were here, when you had all kinds of people who looked different from one another and they established themselves. And that was creating the group known as white which was the group that is that historically has been the majority dominating group in our country from before it was even the United States of America. And then bringing in African Africans to build the country from, from a wilderness and to convert this the wilderness into uh, the United States of America. And then there were people who came from different parts of the world and they had to find a way to exist within this hierarchy. And that created tensions and divisions and pitting of one group against the other, each group to survive having to figure out how do I, how do I uh, get in the good graces of those who are, on, who are dominating in our country. So that's the essential situation. One of the things that, was, that, that also comes in the mix is gender. So what you have is you have people who are in the dominant group and they could be in the dominant gender, and thus those are the, that's the group that historically in our country has, they were the only ones who were permitted to own property, period. They were the only ones who were permitted to vote for centuries in this country. And then when the vote, uh, when, when finally after the Civil War, the vote was extended to, uh, out to people who were not um, white men, it was extended to black men, not black women. So uh, that, that's what um, the, the, the post-Civil War amendments, re reconstruction amendments allow. And so we can see the ways in which our society has been built this way, such that those who were at the bottom of, on, by gender and by, by caste, by gender and by race, would be Black women. So what I hear in that question is the exclusion of Black women in the process. And I think that that is detrimental to all of us as a country, because when you exclude Black women from the 
from, uh, from the depiction of what, what is acceptable, what is mainstream, what is part of our country, then you're excluding uh, those who are most marginalized. And when you have people at the very bottom, then that means that you are excluding a central you know, part of our country's uh, uh, identity. And so that's what I hear in that question. And I think that this is, this is one, another way of looking at it is that it's um, that the visual uh, presentations of who is with what person may seem like a very quick fix to centuries long uh, exclusion, but it also, because it's a quick fix, and you know, I keep saying we need to slow down, we're in a hurry, it can also lead to the illusion of progress when there actually has been very little progress in that sphere. So I'm very cautious about not looking at the quick fixes, but recognizing that this is a long haul. This is 400 years in the making. There's not gonna be one law, one commercial, uh, one movie, one book, no one thing, one, one, no one uh, politician can make the difference. It's, it takes all of us to come together. And I wanna say that what's most important is for all of us to recognize how we're all affected by this. Our country suffers in so many ways. We're one of the few countries that has no um, that does not provide parental leave. We say we value children, we say we value family, and yet we do not provide parental leave for parents at the most critical moments in their lives. We should be caring about the new generations that are coming in. We, we are, remember how we're an outlier in this. We are the, the wealthiest country in the world, and yet we are so stingy when it comes to providing for our own people. And that has to do with the divisions that we have inherited, the fact that people can separate themselves and feel they have no stake in the well-being of others who are not like them. And it makes for a, a, a harder um, uh, a road for everyone in this country. Everyone suffers because of divisions. Holding down people at the very bottom ultimately hurts everyone. And my goal is to get everyone to recognize how we are all hurt by this and to recognize that these things can even be a matter of life and death. We have the highest maternal mortality rate in the, one of the highest mortality uh, rates in the world. Again, the wealthiest nation in the world, the most technologically advanced nation in the world. There is no reason for the suffering that occurs as a result of our divisions. Well, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you, Isabel Wilkerson. We've enjoyed you this morning at Dallas College with our community there. We've also enjoyed you tonight, the DFW community online, and have thoroughly um, um, engaged in conversation with you today. So we appreciate you. Right now, I'm going to turn the program back over to Liz Bradstreet. Uh, I just want to say thank you for that conversation. And Ms. Wilkerson, thank you so much for sharing your guidance, sharing your wisdom, and sharing your book. Uh, this was an excellent, necessary conversation, so I appreciate it. Uh, everyone, please go pick up a copy of the book cast the origins of our discontents. And I must uh, plug in also, if you are not a member of your local council yet, we are all members uh, driven organizations and we need your memberships. Please uh, join one in your city. And thank you very much to everyone tonight for joining us and have a good evening. <laughs>